Welcome to Beyond Politics broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I am thrilled to have back one of our most popular guests. I have the data. I have the receipts to prove it. Mike Lean Kroll used to be the chief of staff for Senator Bernie Sanders. You might have heard of him. Now is at a bipartisan firm in Washington, D.C., S3, where she provides strategic guidance to all kinds of important people. But now she's rejoining us here to talk about, first of all, whether the Democrats are about to be lit on fire as we record this in the election tomorrow. Second of all, about my frustrations. I think the frustrations that a lot of Democrats are feeling about, well, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Clean, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's always fun. It's always fun. It's great to catch up. I, you know, like I, I look forward to these chats a lot. And yet today, I'm not so thrilled. I don't think a lot of us are feeling that thrilled. And, and here's why. You know what? There's a New Yorker article that I'd love to quote from our friend Benjamin Wallace Wells, the headline of which, and look, as a writer, I know you don't always control the headlines, the editors do, but here's the headline. Why Republican insiders think the GOP is poised for a blowout. The subhead is, and the consensus among pollsters and consultants is this Tuesday's election will be a bloodbath the Democratic Party. So that's not great. Thoughts? Nope. Not good. Yeah, good. And that's that's the kind of incisive analysis we bring on Beyond Politics. Not good. Um, so, so, yeah. I, I, I mean, what I'd like to unpack about that is that could be true. But I think there's also reason to tap the brakes as well. That's that's my that's my feeling about it. But people are here for your expertise. What's your feeling about it? So from a bipartisan firm, I am absolutely hearing those talking points from my colleagues. And so they are pretty bullish on how this election night is going to go tomorrow. But I think there's a lot out there that we can unpack here. I think there are a lot of candidates that make a difference. There is certainly a lot of different ways to run races. And there's a lot of ways to look at these polls. And I think that you've de- this is not the summer. The summer was great. Democrats were riding high. We were feeling great. There were a bunch of specials that went really, really well for us. We're not in the same t- same space right now. And I think that there's a lot to unpack with how many women are coming out and registering, especially in places like Pennsylvania, in the suburbs, where it really makes a difference. How many young people are now registered and what they feel about the erosion of rights for, for women and in voting. I think we have a lot to unpack in terms of are these polls accurate? Have right. we <laughs> Have we got the right information going into these polls? I'm not so sure. And I actually think that there's there might be a reason for a little bit of hope going into these. And uh, honestly, the, the Senate's going to be the place to watch because I think it's race by race and it's it's hard to it's hard to paint them with a broad brush. So maybe we can get into some of those races. Right. I mean, I think, well, that lines up with with my thinking, but I prefer to hear it from you because you're smarter than I am. I mean, I'd say the number one thing is and there's a great piece on this in the New York Times, the Nates have been doing a pretty good job at trying to label the uncertainty that we have here on both 538 and in the New York Times. So you can check out the Nate Cohn article in the New York Times from November 5th. The underlying point is this. It's very trite for politicians to say, don't believe the polls. I don't think you and I are quite saying that. We actually do believe in polls. We believe that they have useful information to 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 bring to us. I think what we're trying to say is that there's uncertainty and anyone who's credible worth their salt talking about this is going to acknowledge that. And you can really break it down piece by piece. I mean, look, if we, we've all 
we all remember painfully the kinds of polling errors that we saw in 2016 and even in 2020. We tend to forget that the polling error actually went in the other direction in many cases in 2018 in the last set of midterms. So 2016, the polls were actually wrong. And when the actual votes came out, it was much more Republican than we realized. In 2018, it was much more Democratic than we realized. So for example, if we had a 2020 polling error, so for example, if we look at this race by race in Arizona, right now, the polling average shows the Democrat in the Senate race there up by two points. Now, if we had a polling error that is favoring Republicans, like we saw in 2020, then the real result would be one point advantage for the Republican. If we had a 2018-like polling error, it would be even more in favor of the Democrat. Same story in Nevada, which is one of the closest Senate races out there. And it's currently the polling average says it's plus one Republican. If we had a 2018-like polling error, it would be plus two to the Democrat. All of which is to say, we're not saying, once again, don't believe the polls. We're saying, believe the polls, but acknowledge that there are errors that go in each direction because of the ways that pollsters have to do these things. And it really is uncertain. It really could be that when you go on a race by race basis, it's better for Democrats than it looks in the polling averages. Yeah. And I think that that's part of the trouble that we have here is that there have been adjustments that have been made for polling issues that now do favor the Democrats. And I do think that's the, the, what we've seen in the last election. But I think in some places, like in Pennsylvania, you're looking at tons of different voters that care about different things. I mean, I think in that state in particular, you're seeing the abortion issue and democracy as top issues right next to the economy. And so that's going to matter in a way that in Nevada, it maybe doesn't matter. And so Nevada, we're seeing some good numbers with the unions and some good polls that are coming out of Nevada. I still think that's one of the toughest races in the countries to watch. And so I, I do think the polls do instruct us, but they have been wrong. And I and I think that there's such there are so many undercurrents this year that are different. And you, you just you can never adjust in real time for the the sway that happens in the country. And of course, it is different state by state. So we're we're seeing some things that maybe wouldn't make as big a difference in a place like Nevada that are making a big difference someplace like Pennsylvania. Well, speaking of Pennsylvania, I mean, just to kind of drill down on what we're talking about here. So every pollster applies weighting to, and I, I, I don't mean to nerd out on, on people and lose them here, but just, just okay. to give a little that's glimpse. Well, right. I mean, that's true. That's true. So every pollster applies weighting. What that means is when you do a poll, when you, you, first of all, you have to nowadays, if you're doing it on the phone, you have to call like 10,000 people at least or more frequently more to get a sample of, say, 500 who will actually talk to you. And then the 500 who will actually talk to you aren't necessarily representative of the voters. You have to make an educated guess at what the real breakdown of the voters is. You have to make a guess of, well, how many people with a college education are going to be part of the electorate? How many people who are white are going to be part of the electorate? How many people who are women? And so pollsters make these educated guesses. It's what one pollster 
told me is sort of the secret sauce that they put on to the Big Mac. And those weights can change the outcomes of the polls we see quite significantly. I'm not suggesting that they're putting their thumb on the scale intentionally to try to help their side, but they make assumptions. They Well, maybe they do do that sometimes, but they make assumptions. So here's an example. In Pennsylvania last week, four Republican-leaning polling firms came out with polls that showed Mehmet Oz with a lead. This week, four conventional pollsters who are not partisan-leaning in any way came out with polls, and they showed John Fetterman either tied or ahead. Who do you believe? I'm not saying that I disbelieve Republicans simply because they're Republicans. What I'm saying is everyone has to make assumptions. Republicans may be more prone to making assumptions that kind of fit their theory of the case of what's going on in, in, in this election. And we just won't know until the votes come out. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. I think you, you're, you've seen the same kind of thing happen in Arizona during the primary that we had this interesting number out of, out of Arizona. I know it's a little bit old, but I think it, it means something for 18,000 voters who were not expected to show up and vote in the primary. And so we're going to see that again. We've got people who are infrequent voters and you're not targeting infrequent voters when you're going out there and doing polls. You're targeting likely voters for the most part. And so how do you even tap into that infrequent voter, you know, piece of the puzzle here? And we're talking about Republicans, Democrats and independents, especially when you're talking about women who are coming out for different reasons this year. And I think that there's been a lot of downplay on you know, what really has been the impact of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But I think we haven't seen the end of that story yet. And I think that there's a lot of folks who maybe are in suburban places like, you know, suburban Philadelphia, where that's a really big issue, you know, but the Republicans are doing the best they can to come out and hit those voters with scare on crime and those sorts of things. And we'll get into this later when we talk about your article, but we've got a great record in this in this president and in the, with the Democrats on, on crime. And we've made some big strides here in terms of, you know, violence prevention. And so I, I think it's, it's who's making the best closing arguments. And also, what are we seeing in terms of early votes? And that's a different story across the country because a place like Georgia, where early voting has been restricted a little bit, but they are there's still a huge output of, of early votes happening. They don't tend to favor the Democrats. And then you're talking about, you know, what happens actually on election day have in some states, it's gone back to normal where people are going to show up at the polls and, uh, and, and, and cast their votes. So I think you're seeing good trends in places like Georgia with early voting, but there are other states where it's, it's all going to be on election night. So we're going to be watching places like Virginia to see some of those house races. Mm. I don't need to get into many of those, but there are some in Virginia. If we Democrats lose a couple of those, it's going to be a, a rough night for Democrats if they only lose one. Maybe maybe we, we're talking about, you know, an even even Stephen here as we get into right. the, the numbers. So I want to ask you a little bit, you mentioned the abortion effect. And the, again, this is something with a lot of unknowns. And there are just to drill down on, and I'm going to turn this into a question from your particular experience in a second, but I think the way that Democrats look at that is that it was sort of a wake-up call. It was it was the alarm going off in the morning that keyed Democratic-leaning voters into the fact that there was a threat to issues that were important to them. And 
once that happened and once they started to tune in, that's where you began to see Democratic voter engagement on the kinds of other issues that we have been putting forward as things that are consequential and matter, like the January 6th hearings, the threat to democracy, and the actual achievements of Democrats who are holding power. The Republican theory of the case is actually a little bit different, and they could be right. I'm not trying to pretend that they're definitely wrong, but what they're suggesting is that what happened was the Dobbs decision came out in June. And then we saw this weird effect that can happen in polling called differential response bias. That's a complicated way of saying, all of a sudden, you're all ginned up about something. And so if your phone rings and it's a pollster, you're a lot more likely to say, yes, I'll talk to you about my feelings, right? And if you're a Republican in that situation and you're feeling like things aren't going that great right now, you're more likely to say, no, I do not want to talk to you about any of this. Right now, I don't feel like talking about any of this because I'm feeling depressed. So that's what they think, is that the recovery that we saw for Democrats in polling over the summer was kind of an artifact of one of these weird psychological polling quirks. It's not real. It's begun to fade. It's just because Democrats were more likely to pick up the phone. It's not a real effect. Now I'm going to turn that into the question to you. You've actually been part of a race when you were Bernie Sanders' chief of staff. You were part of a race where enthusiasm and the perception that you were ultimately going to win was a real factor. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Because what you faced in that 2016 cycle was this feeling of inevitability for your primary opponent. And it, it feels like you must be always fighting that battle of, if our voters expect that ultimately we're going to lose, they're going to be demoralized and they're not, they're going to, it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Is that something that you guys talked about, worried about, and how did you combat it? Yeah. And I actually think that maybe it it has the opposite effect sometimes when you're, mm-hmm. when you're down and when you're looking like things are rough, that that's when, that's when people really get out there and work and are motivated and, and try to get out there and make a change. So I think with, with Bernie, it was an interesting phenomenon because, you know, the party was so much putting the thumb on the scale of, of the, the other candidate. And so we had, we had a hard time overcoming that, but that made for some really dedicated voters who were going to overcome whatever it took to get out there and, 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 and get to the polls. And I, I think now what's happening is that you're, you're just seeing the the fruits of that on the local level because people are funding local grassroots organizers especially in places like Georgia where they're going to overcome some of the bad changes in voting laws to really get people out to the polls and so i think when the, when the chips are down people get out there and get to work and i think for for democrats in particular i think you might be seeing some people thinking about, do I have to really pay more attention to where my polling place is and how I get to vote and how I make a plan to vote and whether I can do that early and avoid having to miss work? And so I, I think when the when the chips are down, it, it depends on the types of voter you have. And mm. I think there, like I said before, there are so many people who are unlikely voters who are showing up to vote. And I think those are folks who are motivated who are not going to forget about what's happened and and who are, are definitely being more engaged than they've been in the past and they're making plans to get out there. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that comes together. Well, and I think that that really is sort of the sum up of, of this part of the discussion is 
I just, I, I don't think you or I want people out there to fall into this self-reinforcing dynamic of, oh, we're, we're going to make this true because there's so much reporting on the idea that it's going to be a bloodbath. Don't bother. Don't show up. You know, by the way, we're on the air in New Hampshire where a Republican staffer literally, well, they got convicted. I don't think they spent time in actual jail, but they got convicted of a crime for impersonating a Democrat online and trying to make it seem in an election like this one's over. You guys should go volunteer somewhere else, you know, and that's in a larger sense what I'm afraid the media is kind of doing to us here. They're kind of reinforcing the message that, oh, it, this is going to be a bloodbath. Don't even bother. And I think our message is that's far from true. Look, yeah. we could wake up Wednesday and could work out that Republicans have a great night Tuesday night. And it could work out that that they win solidly. It could. But anyone who tells you that they know what's going to happen is full of it. They're not, it, there's there's too much uncertainty. I'll go back to what I said before, polling expert, any political expert worth their salt who's talking about this election, who doesn't acknowledge that there's this amount of uncertainty is full of it. They are, they're, they're selling you something. I would not trust it. I agree. Yeah. I think this is a tough year. I think it's a tough one to predict. And I think that we're going to see the the benefits of people who over the last couple of cycles have seen, you know, have seen changes in voting laws that they're ginned up to try to counteract. Georgia is going to be an interesting one. We're not going to know that one's likely to go to a runoff. We're not going to know for a long time, but I, I know for a fact on the ground there, there's a lot happening in terms of organization, people, energy, young people, minorities. It's going to be, it's going to be an interesting thing to see how well some of these voting changes have been, have been counteracted by good old fashioned on the ground, organizing, door knocking, get out the vote. Well, look, I mean, for our listeners, I, I didn't want to belabor your bio because you've been a guest before and people can Google you and they should, they should, they should check out everything you've done. I mean, one of the people you've worked for is civil rights hero and American hero, John Lewis. And so you are a bit of a Georgia political expert. That's one of the places that we've seen this effect before is restrictive voter access laws go into effect and they don't end up decreasing turnout especially among black voters, because people compensate by getting motivated and getting ginned up. And that's what needs to happen this time. We're talking in this episode with Michaeline Crowell, one of the most experienced inside political hands in America. I'm not making this up. She was the legislative director for John Lewis. Yeah, that that John Lewis, you know, American hero, John Lewis. She was the chief of staff for Bernie Sanders and she is now working at a bipartisan firm. So she gets insights from Republicans too, which somehow you managed to hold. You know what? I love our video image here, Mike. For, for our video viewers, they will see that Mike Lean has, this is like a cinematic mise-en-scene thing that you've set up here. Over one shoulder is the doorway of light. Over the other shoulder is the doorway of darkness. And it's like, you somehow managed to keep all of that in your head. I presume that this is a metaphor for your current life. So you also know that I have a bipartisan marriage. So I am able to translate Republican and Democrat and, and raise children who apparently will be Democrats. So I'm pretty happy about that. 
So yeah, my my firm is bipartisan. We give each other a lot of flack about elections and and I have some really bullish folks who are out there, but I got to be honest, at the end of the day, you know, there's been a lot accomplished this year on a bipartisan basis and it's really really heartening to see that even though that message is not getting out, Republicans don't like to brag that they got things done under a Democratic president. And some places it's hard to to talk about the president's agenda and really get proud about it. So I think that it is one of the things I know that drives you nuts, Matt, but there is a lot that's been done that both sides of the aisle are happy about, but nobody's talking about. And so I hope we can talk a little bit about that today. Yeah, let's talk about that. I got to say, first of all, kudos to you on having a bipartisan marriage. There is actually polling that supports the idea that Americans now are less apt to enter a bipartisan marriage than an interracial marriage. And when my father remarried back in 1980, he entered an interracial marriage. And that was uncommon at the time. And we had a very like a very it's like a modern family looking kind of family, except it didn't look like a common family back then. And I can tell you that however uncommon that was at the time, what you've got going now is it's, it's good for you. It's good for you. I've been in it for 22 years and we're still keeping it strong. It's When you got into it, it wasn't as as fraught of a thing. It was like, oh yeah, that, that happens all the time. So you're right. I'm super frustrated. And I think, I think that I channeled in my article on the editorial board, and it's also on Alternate and Raw Story that I wrote on Friday, I think I channeled frustrations that a lot of Democrats are feeling. The title uh, of the article, which again, I didn't title this, was here's everything the Democrats have done and why these midterms should be a cakewalk. I'm not sure they should be a cakewalk in, in, in this day and age. But my point was, if you look at it through any kind of an objective lens, what President Biden and the Democrats who run Congress have accomplished over the last two years is truly historic and stands up favorably against the initial two-year record of any president, Republican or Democratic. And I know, I know voters don't necessarily care about facts. We campaign in poetry. We govern in prose. We don't get rewarded for what we did in the past. All of those like, okay, I get it. I get it. But it still drives me up the freaking wall. Michael, you used to be in the middle of all of this as a Senate chief of staff. First of all, what did you make of my contention that this is a truly historic set of accomplishments? And number two, in your um, bipartisan marriage, both at home and at work, like when the when the cameras are off, when when people are just being candid, do Republicans get it that this has actually been an incredibly successful couple of years? Yeah, I I will say that, yes, it is historic and it is pretty amazing what has been accomplished over the last couple of years, given how narrowly divided Congress is. And honestly, it doesn't take too many drinks to get Republicans to admit that there's a lot out there that is really that has really been done across the aisle on things that a lot of people care about, including, you know, on chips and semiconductors in terms of public safety, roads and bridges. You know, some of the things that we've been able to accomplish, including on gun violence and other things, are really, really significant. And uh, and I do think that the Republicans get it. 
it just doesn't fit their narrative. So they're going to talk about the places where we've not really hit the mark or where they can scare their voters into really coming out on places like crime and, and other things. But I also think it's really interesting that our Democrats ourselves had an even broader uh, agenda and things that we wanted to accomplish and didn't get to accomplish all of it because we have such a narrowly divided Senate. And so the things that we wanted to accomplish and that the House was able to pass earlier in the cycle just didn't come to fruition because we had real challenges in the Senate. And I think that just speaks to the new leadership that's coming up and the troubles that we're going to have, no matter who's in charge, really getting to yes on some of these, these pieces of legislation. And so, you know, Democrats feel let down a little bit, I think, because we didn't accomplish 10,000 things, but we have a really, really solid level of accomplishment here. And I think that Democrats fall into the trap that we usually do, which is when we're governing, it is in prose and it is in details. And it's harder once we've had these massive accomplishments for Democrats to really tout them. And I think we're not as messaged as our Republican colleagues are. And that's I a great euphemism. We're not as message structured. That's that's brilliant. I I could give the candid version of that, but go on, please. Yeah, no, I we're we're, we're not great on the messaging side. I mean, Matt, you know how this goes. We we have we're, we're hamstrung. About. We're we hamstrung. Are. We right. are. You know what? It matters in different things. Different things matter in different places. And so, as we were talking about earlier, the way that Fetterman is is talking about abortion and democracy issues, those issues aren't playing for, for Cortez Masto out in Nevada. And so it, it's a, just a different, it's different. Democrats have a harder time having one message that you're hearing all the time that's on their news source of choice. And, and Democrats talk about a lot of different things in a lot of different places. So having those one note Johnny type of messages, we're, we're not good at that as Democrats. And so I think that's part of why we're having such a hard time breaking through with all of the things that have been accomplished over the last, you know, couple of years here. Not to mention that the numbers tell a very different story than what the Republicans are claiming that they tell. I mean, the job growth, the increase in manufacturing jobs, the increase in in people working. I, I just think we're seeing something decrease in poverty. Things things that we haven't seen in a very very long time. We're just not getting credit for that. And I think sometimes it's it comes down to personalities in these in these races and people are less concerned about what it actually means in terms of policymaking and and it gets into the politics of it. And politics are, are just hard. They're well, just- yeah, I mean, I think I do think the media bears a lot of blame here. I'm going to I'm going to lay a little bit at the Democrats own feet. I will. But I, I, I do want to focus on the media part of it. For a second, they have not because covered any of this, they've but not. Think- yes, yes, right. Because you know, policy is might- just not sexy. Well, and it's also what's what I think is really frustrating about it. And I start my article this way: is reaching back forty years to Ronald Reagan's nineteen eighty four campaign, which he won forty nine out of fifty states, the biggest landslide in the history of America of an election. And it was all based on recovery, economic recovery. And it was a mirage. That's that's my euphemism of the morning. It wasn't, it wasn't real in the sense that things were not better than they were when he was elected. They were better than during the absolute crater of a disaster that we lived through in 1982 when he was president. The recession, the stagflation, unemployment and inflation, both over 10%. I mean, that's Horrible. That's historically horrible. And 
So when he asked people, are you better off than you were four years ago? What they remembered was, well, I'm better off than I was two years ago under you. And they felt better. They felt like things were going in the right direction. And what's just the frustration for me is, shouldn't the same thing apply to Democrats now? Aren't we better off than we were under the flaming dumpster fire of Donald Trump just two years ago? Obviously, clearly, unquestionably, we are. So what's the missing part of the equation? And I think you said it. I think the missing part of the equation is on the right, Republicans dominate media and no one, no one acknowledges it. And they, they, they gaslight us by saying that the media is liberal. What the heck are you talking about? What media are you talking about? I mean, I've given these stats on the show before. I won't belabor them, but Fox News absolutely destroys, including their website version and their cable television version and all of the viral content that comes off of them on social media. Fox News and conservative talk radio wipe the floor with mainstream media or the supposedly liberal alternatives like MSNBC. It's not even close. And they speak with one voice and they give exactly one message. And mainstream media, which again, Republicans gaslight us to say, well, that's your alternative. You've got the New York Times. Well, they try to play it down the middle. And so they give at least as many critical headlines to Democrats as they do to Republicans. And Republicans pick out the ones that are critical of them and say, aha, see, you do it on your side. We do it on our side. So, you know, what about this? It's all, it all comes out in the wash. You know, you, you can't tell the difference between the two. Shenanigans, hogwash, that's the difference in my mind. I think that's what you're pointing out. Yeah. And, you know, one of the critical headlines in The New York Times is that it was on their polling. They had this like harsh on Democrats, you know, discussion on polling that when you actually look at the polls, the polls came out great for Democrats. And if you just look at the headline, you would think that we're down in the dump somewhere. So you never know what the headlines show. But I, I do think every once in a while, a word of truth comes out of the Republicans' mouths. And look, Prices are up and gas is not great where it should be. And I think that's what ha- people have on their minds, but they're not looking at generally how are you better than you were under your dumpster fire of several years ago. And, you know, when you're looking at healthcare, more people are covered. And when you're looking at safety, the numbers don't bear out what the Republicans are talking about. And when you're talking about jobs and how people are doing, everybody's certainly better off than they were a couple of years ago. I mean, by by any stretch of the imagination. And so I, I do think we have a hard time with, with our media. And I do think that the, the Republicans, like I said, they just have a much easier time of sticking to their one or two notes. And, and unfortunately, a couple of the notes that they're sounding re- resonate for people who are out there. And they're not looking at Democrats as people who have the solutions for this one. In fact, the biggest solutions that we've put out there in terms of manufacturing and keeping jobs here and the industries of the future, the things that we've passed over the last couple of years, those are the key to how we're going to continue to really grow the economy and the country. So I I think it's a challenge when you're talking about media. And I do think they bear a lot of the the blame on this discussion. Let me ask ask you this, because you are In addition to being a legislative expert, which you clearly are, you've worked as a legislative in Congress. The staff positions are kind of divided by like there there are people who focus just on sort of the legislative policy side. And then there are people who kind of straddle everything. So the legislative you've been a legislative director focused 
almost entirely on policy. You've also been a chief of staff focused on the big picture, which includes the politics of it. I, oh, and by the way, you're also a lawyer. So you're really going to bristle at my next suggestion. (laughs) I, I have long thought that one of the biggest communications problems that everybody shares is when the lawyers get in the room, because what the, what the communications people will tell you is when you have a problem, what you've got to do is you've got to get it out, get it all out and get it out yourself. What the lawyers will tell you is do not admit anything about anything. You weren't even, don't say a word. If if you could say less than a word, if you could say negative words, say that. And so, and, and you end up with communications problems because the situation got lawyered. Now, before all the lawyers like send me angry letters, I'm going to make an analogy here, which is, do you think, do you, do you, I fear, and I'm wondering if you feel the same way, that part of Democrats' problem here is that much like the, com- the communications versus lawyer problem, we, we do policy and we do communications with a lot of lawyers and wonks in the room. And so you look at the Build Back Better bill. You said a moment ago that we somehow feel like, oh, we had a broader agenda. We didn't get all of it. So now we feel like "Eh, we didn't do that great. Whereas the reality is we've done historically great. Yeah. But we got our expectations ginned up because we got ourselves in a legislative mindset, in a kind of lawyerly policy mindset of we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, instead of. You know what I mean? Like, are we yeah. are we kind of thinking about this backwards, and do we need to sort of be a little a little communicationsier? <laughs> I like that word. So yes, I think you're I think you're exactly right. And so when when I was working with with Bernie Sanders, everything he did was communications. And I think I've said this on this podcast before. So in, to, I may be repeating myself, but it wasn't Bernie Sanders' shining personality that had us talking about Medicare for all in a way that we hadn't in 25 years, it was because of the communication strategy. And so I do think that when you've got a progressive left that's trying to drag the country in a direction that it's maybe not ready to go, it's hard for the Democrats who don't generally take communications as seriously as the progressive left. It's hard for them to sort of counteract that. And I do think there's a role to be played for people who want to pull the country in different directions and to set the narrative for where we should be going as as a nation. But I think the Democrats need to do better at trying to figure out how do we brag about the things that we have done. And, you know, I I think you're right. I think we're a bunch of policy wonks. The Democrats are just wonky and we get stuck in the details and we die on hills that we don't need to die on when, in fact, you can just all take an objective look at our list of accomplishments and get out there and start brag on a couple of them because there's plenty to go around depending on what's polling well in your particular state or district. And so I think the communications piece has, has always been an issue and I think it's always been an afterthought. It was not an afterthought for Senator Sanders. It was something that he was very, very engaged with. He didn't want to do anything if we weren't bragging about it or talking about it. And so I think there's something to be learned from that. And I I think that there are a lot of tools that we're kind of leaving on the table 
as Democrats to really get that message out. And while we're doing a great job with with Get Out the Vote, we're putting a lot of money into, you know, counteracting some of the voting changes that have happened. We're not doing as good a job of really keeping those issues out there, except for a couple specific few that, you know, we get siloed into an environmental you know, silo, which we didn't do as well with on. That's one of the places where I think Democrats were disappointed. But honestly, we've already made changes on that front that really are going to take us into the next the next place. So I think Democrats have a hard time also celebrating half a loaf. Right. We. Yeah. And, you know, I think I think we again, let me be clear that I think the bulk of the issue here is that we have gotten swindled by right wing media. (laughs) <laughs> we have gotten gaslighted into somehow accepting the idea that the media is the friend of the Democratic Party. They are not. And the media is, by and large, on the side of the Republican Party. There's, You just look at the reporting this year, and it is crystal clear. That said, not to criticize ourselves just because we're we're Democrats and we're fans of the circular firing squad, But to actually be productive and think about what can we do better in the future, regardless of what happens in the election tomorrow, I worry that what we did collectively, because there's no like power on high that tells us what to do, we kind of all did this in individual campaigns, is we looked at the polling and we looked at the reaction to the Dobbs decision and we said, here's an issue that voters are responding to. Here's an issue that is fixing our enthusiasm gap. Here's an issue that is getting us an advantage among suburban women, which is a key demographic that we must win among. And we thought, look, let's have one crystal clear message and let's let it be that. What I worry about is that is tactically sensible for an individual campaign. I'm not going to tell the expert pollsters out there, no, 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 you don't have this right. What I worry about, though, is that is what you just pointed out, is that as a party, we weren't able to have one. We, we, we didn't want to fight the economic fight. We didn't want to say we created the most jobs in history in one year. We just didn't want to say that one set because we fooled ourselves by looking at that same polling and saying voters just feel like the economy is bad and they prefer Republicans on the economy. So why talk about it at all? And so we took the course of pivoting to an issue that we thought was better rather than fighting on an issue that we knew was worse. But if we didn't contest it at all, then Republicans would just run away with it. I think you're hundred percent. And I think we're an interesting party to begin with, because I think on the, on the Dobbs issue, I think there was a complete reluctance at the beginning to make that a campaign issue. And I think it wasn't until some of the, the, the ballot initiatives came back as strongly in places where we didn't expect it to, that the Democrats actually embraced that as an issue. Although it was pretty clear to me, even from talking with Republicans, that there was a, a shock that went through the, the electorate Democrats, Republicans, and independents on that issue. So until they saw the polling kind of come through, they they didn't get there. I think you're exactly right. And certainly in, in lots of places, you cannot leave this on the table and expect to be able to fight it back because it is such a bread and butter table 
you know, issue that people really are concerned about their prices and their gas price, and they should be. But places like Pennsylvania, where Fetterman is being able to do both, is a really interesting place to watch because he's not only being able to talk about democracy and voting rights and and abortion, but he's he's also being able to make the the economic argument in a way where he hasn't left any of it on the table. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see how that one turns out. But I think we could have done a little bit more of that nationwide and and not left it on the table because we don't have to win every county. We just have to lose by less in some of those places that switch to Trump from traditionally Democratic voters. And so that was something that, um, you know, Clinton had a problem with, too. She sort of left in the primary with Bernie, she left some of those voters on the table. And when, I mean, when she was running against Trump, she left those voters on the table because, you know, she didn't play through the whole, the whole discussion and try to figure, they figure out how to, how to win by a little bit more, you know, maybe not get all the way over the finish line, but you certainly have to compete in these places. And we, we can't just let the narrative be overrun by, by the Republicans. And then you throw crime on top of it and you got people running around scared. So, and and it it serves as an ultimate distraction. And again, when we say that, we're not dismissing. That's the other thing that comes up from Republicans. We're not dismissing the importance of inflation. If you are on a limited income, if you're working family and your prices have gone up ten percent, you know your grocery bill has gone up ten percent. That's the way you're going to feel about the economy, of course. Right. And, you know, but, if, if but you, you can't look at the Republicans to solve this problem either. And if you look at the, the track record of pulling people out of poverty and, you know, helping working class folks and keeping, you know, child tax credit up to where it needs to be. Those are things that were fought tooth and nail by Republicans and Democrats are the ones that are going to be fighting for that. So I think that they win on the message of what the problem is. But then they, on the other hand, are the exactly the reason why we don't have the solutions that the Democrats want to put forward. And I think that's where Democrats win is when we talk about our solutions and we talk about where to go from here and how to address these issues. Yes, we've made progress. No, we're not all the way there. And we're not going to get all the way there in one election cycle or in one legislative cycle just by nature of the fact that we've got such divided government right now. Right, right. Well, look, I know we've got to wrap up, especially for the for the radio listeners, but just to take us full circle, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We yep. you have some insights because you get to see polling that the rest of us don't, including from Republicans. But again, we don't know. And maybe it'll be really bad for Democrats. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll be surprisingly good. We'll see. I just hope that we learn some of these positive, constructive lessons for next time, because goodness knows in 2024, we're going to need them given what we're up against. And on that note, we're going to have to have you back to talk about all of that afterwards. Michaeline Kroll, your work and your career, everything you've done is second to absolutely none. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it very much. And good luck to everybody. Get out there, make a plan to vote. 